go. So, hello and welcome. Happy Friday to everybody. Today is Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers, episode number 242. And it's uh, Friday, January 26th. And the last Friday um, of every month will be the live Q&A from 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I already know that you guys know that. That's why you're here. So what's going on outside? Let's start with that. 37 degrees Fahrenheit, which is not that bad, but we had temps in the 50s earlier this week. So bees were actually flying, if you can believe that. I had a lot of people checking in with me, wondering what they should do, what they should feed. Uh, should they check fondant and things like that? Absolutely. So what's the uh, percent of relative humidity outside? 99% relative humidity. What's that mean? It's raining. Yep. And the wind is low, so we're talking uh, zero to uh, one to two miles per hour. So that's nice. It's a pretty decent day out there. So we're going to kick it off with um, questions that were submitted because I don't want the people that sent their questions in to be ignored. And this is your chance because we're live to send your own questions in right there in the live chat. And I'll check in with that from time to time. So the very first question that we're talking about today comes from Linda, who's in Yarmouth, Maine. And uh, can you go over how you mass plant for pollinators? I'm starting with Eden Cosmo Sensation and a 20 by 40 tilled plot. Transplant, direct seed, rose scattered. What do you do? So here's what I do here in the Northeastern United States, state of Pennsylvania. Um, Keep in mind, I've been working with my land here. It was nothing but a hay field. So an eight and a half acre hay field, actually. And now it's trees and meadows mixed together. And here's the thing. Um, when it comes to prep for planting and stuff, people have very strong opinions about it. I know that that's shocking to a lot of you. Some people say, don't till. You destroy your soil and the microbiome. But I have to till. I have to till so that uh, the seeds will take. Otherwise, what's already existing out there, goldenrod, asters, we have joe pie weed, we have ironweed, and uh, a lot of native plants out there. Some stuff has to go. So what I do, I wait until spring. I don't plant in the fall. Um, so what I do is um, I mow it down close, and I'm not doing the entire field. So I keep the stuff I like. What's an example of something I like? Milkweed. I have a really dense area of milkweed and there are a few different varieties in there. So that's great for honeybees. And that's kind of how I look at the landscape, honeybee related. So we leave the milkweed. That means I till what looks like crop circles, you know, the alien crop circles. So I till in circles in a spiral because it's easier and I mow it all down. What I did last year, last spring was a big mistake. Uh, I try to plant, uh, Perennials as much as possible, but I do cosmos, which are annuals, and they're really good for your honeybees. I also plant a lot of sunflowers, so those have to be prepped and planted every year. So the question about starting indoors, I don't. Those get direct sowed. Mow, till, and then I wait a day, and I till in the other direction, and then I just broadcast them by hand, and then I roll them with a 700-pound roller. Now, last year, I made a mistake because I went by the calendar and not what the weather was. We didn't have rain for two to three weeks after I planted my seeds. So what happened? The birds got in there and started eating all the seed and the seed was very expensive. The next question people probably ask is where do you source your seed? I get it from Eden Brothers, but you can also go on Amazon and just read the reviews to see how good it was. I am starting several hundred plants inside this year and that's gonna be Hyssop, Giant Blue 
hits up. It did really well last year, and that's going to be like nothing because uh, if we're talking about the acreage. But so I have rows that I follow, serpentine rules, and I'll be interspersing my hyssop plants. And by starting them early, starting them in February indoors, uh, they transplant really well, and they all flowered this year, and they got up to four feet tall. So that was fantastic. So Cosmos I plant. I plant the sunflowers, even though a deer and her two fawns, as cute as they were, got out there and ate 99% of them. So this year I'm sending out uh, the grandsons with, don't be mad, but they're going to be out there with their Nerf guns patrolling the territory and making sure that animals stay off of my sunflowers and the stuff that we want for the pollinators. So anyway, just I throw the seeds out, plant, roll, and this year I'm going to wait until I know there's rain coming in the forecast. So if there's rain forecast in the next two or three days, I'm definitely going to get out there and plant it. So I'm planting around the rain, not around the season. So weeding, I don't do anything about weeding other than, you know, we might dig out some rose bushes, wild roses, and things like that. Uh, the rest of it, we kind of leave. Plus, uh, if you have uh, land under your control, it's good to intersperse some decent trees that are also good for everything, including the bees. So that was question number one. We're just going to look at the feed real quick here to see if anybody has a question or comment that we want to talk about. People are talking about their stuff. Ross Miller is in the house. Good to see you. Keith, of course, is here. Louise says hello. Uh, what else do we have? Justin from Checking My Hives. All 27 are alive and eating hive alive fondant. Yeah, the fondant, by the way, I'm glad that was brought up. <clears throat> Someone that I'm mentoring wrote to me last night. Worried about the bees being able to get into the fondant. She cut slits in it. So what we're talking about, fondant packs like this, just she cut an X with a knife in it, and uh, the bees didn't seem to be accessing the fondant very well. So while we're all on here, I would much prefer that you cut a circle out of it, cut the side with the uh, main label on it, three-inch diameter circle, remove that plastic, and set that right on top of your inner cover into the hole so the bees can access it really quickly. Cutting slits in it, they may be able to get to it, but it is a little more difficult than if you cut the circle out. And of course, it's what the makers of Hive Life Fondant recommend too. So that works really well. And I think a lot of people with the warm up here in the 50s, high 40s where I am, 50s in the lower elevations, uh, the bees were definitely active. So that's something good to think about this time of year. Uh, here we go from Beekeeping for Nerds. Do you think you will incorporate an IPM screened board or trays in your long lang design? Okay, we do have that in the design. And interesting that if you notice, Ross Millard is in the conversation over here. You can talk directly to Ross because he drew up my designs for me. And we do have uh, a long lang that has with or without removable trays and the screen bottom boards. Some people wonder, why didn't you run the screens the full length of your horizontal long length Stroth Hive? And I'll tell you why, because where's the brood located? We really want the screen boards underneath the brood area. So where you see the most pollen and detritus and stuff like that, bits of wax and things falling on the bottom, it tends to kind of centralize itself and near that first third by the entrance. So what we did is we got together and talked about putting the screens in just in that area because it's passive integrated pest management, which means varroa destructor mites can fall through the screen and 
if, see, now here's the thing. Putting trays in there is a good idea because you can see what's going on. You'll find dead mites from time to time. But if mites fall through there and there's nothing to hold them on the tray, then they're going to crawl out and get right back up inside your hive. Mites can crawl a long distance. So you have to spray it with your favorite cooking spray. So spray your tray. Can't think of a rhyme for killing mites. Spray your tray if you want them to not get away. So anyway, spray your trays, but IPM is part of those designs. So for those of you who are wondering what we're talking about, if you go to thewaytobe.org, and don't be alarmed that it's also fredsfinefowl.com. So it's all the same website, and there's a page marked prints or plans or drawings or something like that, and they are free. And that's thanks to our friend Ross Miller, who's on here right now. He drew them up for me. I gave him the, you know, the illustrations that I sketched out myself, and he transposed those into actual prints. You get to download those. You get to do what you want with them, modify it, use it as a basis for your own design. They're not intended to be the final thing. So when you check back on the website uh, years or months later, you will find the most recent and current updated plans and prints for Nuke boxes, the Langstroth boxes, and the horizontal long Langstroth boxes. And uh, I want to thank Ross for that. So... <clears throat> What else are we looking at here? Have you ever looked at the Slovenian bee house? I am in British Canada, in BC, Canada, and thinking about this system to protect from winter weather. Okay, so for those of you who don't know what that is, um, these are hives that uh, are inside a building and they're designed to be inside a building. So they come from areas where, for example, you might migrate your hives around so the whole building is self-contained. They actually had one of these at Hive Life, so a year ago, and I did not see one at the current North American Honeybee Expo. But uh, they're buildings, and that's a great idea because you know what? It's super convenient. You work inside, and the hives are a special design, right? So you can pull the frames out, there are trays underneath, and all your work is done indoors, and you're not impacted by weather. But one of the things I don't like about it is so many hives are right next to each other. There's usually a couple levels of them all on the same wall, and that's great. Um, but if you're in an area where your hives would make it out on their own exposed to the weather, they would be much better off with space between them. So packing them all in a dense setup like that is convenient. It can be a static setup, so it can be a shed or a small building or a cabin or something like that. And of course, they would all be, I assume, on your south-facing wall. And uh, they work really good, but your hives are right next to one another. So there are several out there. A lot of companies are making them now. I don't want to say what the name of the hive is. I want to call them AZ hives or something like that. But uh, they're all in a building. So I had a friend that was going through the Master Beekeeper program with me. And uh, she happened to own an old farm and a great big barn. And so it was interesting that the long axis of the barn ran north to south, which means she had an east-facing wall and a south and a west-facing long wall. So we decided that, wow, couldn't you just take your hayloft, cut little holes in it, because this building's really long, 160 feet, and you could spread out your hives and have them all in the hayloft, hay loft, and then you avoid all predation. The bees have lots of distance to fly out, and they're not hitting snow right away. Plus, when you're harvesting honey from up there, you can gravity drain all of your honey 
down and process it down below. And where the old manure wagon used to pull up, you could pull your truck up and take your honey barrels away. So guess what? She did it. It works fantastic. So buildings work. Buildings are nice. I'm not against them. I like having it for my observation hives. And if I had unlimited funding, of course, I would have what's called a row barn. I don't know if you've seen these long barns. My grandfather had a row barn up in Craftsbury, Vermont, uh, near Little Osmer Pond, if any of you know where that is. And it's where all your horses are in a row. And of course, they all stick their heads out one side of it. So it's a long barn with one horse stall after another. Something like that for beehives, I think, would work fantastic. But if I were building it right now, it would match the contour of the land, of course, but they would all face south or southeast. So if I had unlimited funds, that's the kind of structure I would have because it would protect your hives from heavy winds, heavy weather, and the bees would have open access to all of that great forage. So let's see what else is going on. Uh, Keith Spillman, I don't know if you guys are talking to me or if somebody else is talking. Oh, it's Mr. Approachable. That question's for... Let's see. Uh, Ross Miller says you can double up a tray at either end if you prefer. Great hive to modify. I agree. Steve Amos, afternoon, Keith. I've noticed that you really have to put the hive alive right over the cluster. I moved one less than four inches. They didn't touch it. Now they've eat a four-inch circle. So, yes, yeah, center your hive alive fondant. Center over that inner cover. Um, the reason I don't put it below the inner cover is because we don't want to pull the hive apart to get down in there to feed them. I'm just talking about what I'm doing, but it's been successful. So uh, centered up, most inner covers have a center hole already, but yes, don't move it off to the side somewhere because bees do tend to get stuck in a specific location unless something is directly above them where that passive warmth is going up. They may not get to it so quickly, but when we get these warm-up days like high 40s, low 50s, they'll spread out and get access to resources throughout the hive. But if you want them to have that access during the cold periods, then directly above them is going to be very important. So that's a good point to bring up. Let's see. All right, we're going to move on to another question. This comes from Ginger from, I'm going to mess this up. It's Haula, Hawaii. Ants have... Uh, created a nest in the upper channel of one of my flow frames where the keys go. I have harvested the honey and I'm wondering about the best way to get rid of the ants. I was thinking of submerging the frame into a bucket of soapy water made with a few drops of seventh generation dish soap and then spraying the frame out with fresh water and letting it dry. There is a fair amount of beeswax on this frame as it has been in use for a few years now. Do you think there would be any soap residue leftover after the beeswax that would be harmful for the bees so here's the thing ants and bugs right here i used to kill off a bunch of the japanese beetles because they're really dumb and they're easy to trap and i used to put them in soapy dish soap water i used that just in case i had it handy this dawn free and clear dish soap because it's biodegradable and it doesn't harm the environment and stuff but then i realized i don't need that all i have to do is take a bucket and fill it with really hot water and the bugs that I throw in it, in that case, it was Japanese beetles, but it works on all bugs. The really hot water just kills them without any chemicals. Then they go and dump their bodies in 
the yard for the chickens or I can dump them right in the pond and the fish eat them. So with that thought in mind, we're talking about flow frames. Can't believe I don't have a flow frame sitting right here somewhere. Anyway, the flow frames are, they have a lot of leaves in them. So there's a lot of movement pieces and stuff and there's little tabs that cover them. So here's what you do for those with flow frames that want to clean them up because this is on the top of my list for this year. I had to look at melting points of the plastic because we don't want to overheat the plastic and damage it. So here's the thing. Uh, we need to get those hot enough. So yes, I'm going to recommend that you create a tub and that you heat the water really hot so that you will melt out the wax, the propolis, and it kills the ants all without any uh, chemical treatments, no residue. So you're going to take it to 145 degrees Fahrenheit, that's 63 degrees Celsius. And when you get it that hot, it's hot enough to melt all of the residue out of it because a lot of those areas are not accessible. This would also work if you've got, you know, plastic foundation frames and things like that. But in this case, we're talking about specifically the flow frames, which are very expensive. Um, and so we get it past the melting point of the wax. So the upper end of that is 145 degrees. And that keeps us well below the 195 degree Fahrenheit or 90 degrees Celsius, which even low grade plastics would have a problem with. So you don't want to overheat them, but you want to get that out. So a hot bath, dip, clean it out, and that's enough. We don't have to use uh, pesticides or soaps or anything else beyond that, unless for cosmetic reasons, but you can dip that. And I'm a little bit disappointed that um, the people that designed it at Flow, honeyflow.com, I haven't come up with a really set hard and fast cleaning system. There is somebody online who took all the leaves apart and scrubbed every individual piece, but hot water should do the trick. So let's just check in over here. Can I use, a, this is from Victor. It says, can I use a QMP noodle to stop a hive from making queen cells while requeening to make it hopelessly queenless before introducing a new queen? Yes. To answer Victor's question, can I use a QMP noodle? Some of you are wondering what the heck is a QMP noodle? It is called temp queen. QMP stands for queen mandibular pheromone. And it is sold by Better Bee and others, but that is the purpose of it. So for example, you think you might be queenless and you don't want them making a new queen. So that means there are no new queen cells in production yet, but you know you're queenless and you're gonna bring in a queen and you're gonna replace it. So put that temp queen noodle in there it tricks your bees into thinking there's a queen present. Therefore, the worker bees are suppressed. So not only will they not make a new queen with any existing eggs or if there happen to be larvae around, which probably there won't be considering that you've already discovered that it's queenless. So they're probably pretty far along. So what we're really trying to do is stop those female workers from becoming laying workers. And they've discovered or observed that it takes an average of three weeks for them to do that. From the moment they realize they're without a queen pheromone to the time they activate their ovaries and begin to lay those drone eggs, that's about 21 days out. So a QMP noodle definitely will suppress that and prevents them from getting that going. So that's what it's designed for. I just use it for a lot of other stuff. Let's see. Any other questions here before we move on? This is uh, Zelma B says, having a clipped queen does not prevent swarming, does it? What happens when the clipped queen fails? 
Do the bees kill her and make a new queen? They sure do, Zelma. And you're right. For those of you who don't know what we're talking about here, um, if you've watched any of the University of Guelph uh, instructional videos, Paul clips the queen's wing on all of his queens. Uh, the reason they do that is it doesn't stop swarming. Absolutely doesn't. So what the bees do is when they decide to get rid of their queen, it just means that when she leaves the hive, she's going to fly out and land right in front of the hive in the grass somewhere. She doesn't get very far. And that's when you find these little clusters of bees around them. So the other thing is we can't trap the queen or keep her in there and force them to keep her once they've decided to get rid of her. And uh, this year, after all the years I've been keeping bees, is the first year I've seen the workers actually turn on a queen, mob her, start biting her legs, chewing her wings, and driving her out. And when she wouldn't go, they ultimately killed her. They killed two queens in that hive. So something's up with those bees but they showed a preference for a specific queen and they allowed her to live. So this wasn't queen to queen combat. This was an older queen being eliminated by the bees and then being dragged out. If I had not been there to watch it happen in the observation hive, I never would have known the drama that took place in there. And uh, when they otherwise would have just dragged her out, we'd find a dead queen in front of the hive if we're paying attention to what's on the ground there. So the bees definitely make that decision. And you're right, clipping the queen does not prevent uh, the colony from producing replacement queens any more than putting a queen excluder on the front of your hive would uh, keep them from replacing the queen. You just end up with a trapped queen or a queen that can't fly and start a new colony elsewhere. What's the benefit of that? Well, we're talking about it. If you clip the queen's wing and she can only fly out and land on the ground, you'll find out that a cluster of bees do join her there. But when they realize she can't fly, they very soon abandon her. and A lot of them return to the hive that she came from. So the advantage is you don't lose up to 70% of your workforce in that colony. So clipping the queen's wings gives you a chance. If you're, vigilant, if you're vigilant and you're out there every day, you'll find these uh, queens that get cast out like that. And as I mentioned before, Paul clips all of his wings. So uh, it keeps them from sealing all your bees as well. So there are many levels to that. Now, other people will tell you, I might as well talk about this. Uh, clipping the queen's wing is mutilation of the queen and uh, should not be done, is what they will say. And uh, I'm going to tell you that I'm fine with it either way, clipping the queen wing and not clipping the queen's wing. One of the things you'll hear is that their wings are under pressure. The veins going through the wing, of course, if you clip them, then that opens up the pressure for their hemolymph and that the bees will die. Well, uh, they've been doing this for a very long time at the University of Guelph, and those queens are not dying. So once their wings are out and fully formed and fully dried, they're going to hold that position. So uh, don't worry about that being the issue. So, And uh, Dirt Rooster's here. Oh, man, I wasn't drinking out of his cup this time. So if you guys don't know, Dirt Rooster, Randy McCaffrey is here. I don't know how you have time to be here, but I'm glad you are. And uh, let's see if anybody else has. We got Rodney. Keith is keeping law and order. Lester's here. DC's Bees is here. So we'll just go down the line really quick. It's after 9 p.m. in Scotland from MMB. So you know what? I'm really glad that you're here from Scotland. It's just fantastic community. Uh, let's see. So is timing feathers on a chicken mutilation? Timing, I think you mean trimming chicken feathers. 
And is it mutilation? No, because here's the thing about chickens. Let's talk about chickens for a minute. Gallus domesticus. You uh, trim off their primary flights on one side sometimes to keep them from being able to fly over a fence. You just trim their feathers. Now the feathers get replaced. They go through a mold and they grow new feathers. So for those of you who don't know, if you grabbed a feather and you pulled it out, the entire feather right through to the quill point, they'll grow a new feather. So I've seen people at these, these really wacky doodle national poultry shows that realized they had a white feather where they, it would have been a disqualifier or a defect for the bird. And you watch those guys reach in and pluck that feather out. And I talked to a guy that was a master exhibitor, a hall of famer. I said, why do you pull the whole feather out like that? Let me just clip it off. Well, because it'll grow a new one if you pull the entire feather. So there's not mutilation. Keep in mind, your queens cannot grow a new wing the way that a chicken can grow new feathers. But I see what you're going for, and that's okay. So let's see. Sting the like button, says Steve Amos. Yeah, I wouldn't hate you if you guys clip the like button. There's Robert. Hello. And... Uh, Let's see what else. Any other questions real quick before I go? Dirt Rooster, you're responsible for my wife getting two hives five years ago. Now I have 12 hives and I have sold 100 gallons of honey. So thank you. Yes. Say thank you to Dirt Rooster. Randy is good people. Sydney, Australia. Ross Patterson. Thank you for being here. All right. We'll move on to another question. Uh, to do to do. Here comes Eric from... I'm going to mess up this one, too. Yumea, Sweden? Anyway, where I live, I can inspect, expect a constant minus 10 Celsius for winter and uh, periods of the month and minus 30 Celsius. I have been told by beekeepers around me that I need to insulate my hive all around to keep them alive, not the bottom. What insulation would you recommend? I now have a hard seven centimeter ground insulation, no top vent for better weather resistance. I don't know what's available in Sweden, but uh, now we get into the discussion of natural insulation, organic insulation versus the synthetics. So I think it could be argued that the poly hives, the polystyrene uh, hives have the greatest insulation R value, but those that want to use natural materials could follow uh, the designs of um, Dr. Leo Sharashkin maybe and create an outer wall and use sheep's wool for your insulation. Uh, I like double bubble these days, it's right here. You can create an airspace double bubble, airspace double bubble, and then you get a really high art factor for that. So there's a lot of material. So I think it depends on what's around in your area. But probably, considering where you live, other people are keeping bees, and they're the ones that are telling you to insulate. I would find out what they're insulating with, and have discussions with those who the most who are the most successful in your climate with their bees. So the other thing is, if you're looking for a hive that comes ready to go, all insulated and is a Langstroth style design, I have I like the Apame hives right now because they're weather tough. And uh, they're pretty well insulated. So you can also add insulation to them if you want to, particularly on the covers above those feeder inserts. So I actually like those pretty much right now, too. So there's a lot of insulation material out there. But being that you're in an area I'm unfamiliar with, I would find out what other local beekeepers are successfully wintering with. So what else we have? Here's Robert says, question for you, Fred, in Montana, as well as here in Florida, 
around wintertime, I see these round, small objects that are black on hives. I don't believe it has anything to do with feeding. Small black objects round on hives. I have no idea what you're talking about. Does anybody else know what these small black objects are in hives? I, I don't know. That's, I don't have enough information. And uh, DCSB says, I have watched videos of queen wing clipping. I'm too chicken. Yeah, if you're not comfortable with it, don't be clipping those wings. If you can't hold your hands out and they're not rock steady, don't you dare take scissors to your queen. But if you buy the Paul Kelly B belt, it comes with all the stuff on it, including scissors for clipping wings, marking, queen cages. It's a one-stop shop for everything. Mine's out in the bee shed, so I don't have it here, but it has it just in case. So my chickens and ducks are near to molting. Guess it takes time to sprout new feathers. It does. When they go into the molt, they go off lay for a long time. In some cases, about 12 weeks. What's really bad is if you get those chickens that molt all at once and just drop all their feathers and they look really awkward. And uh, it's really sad when it happens to roosters because they don't look cool anymore. And of course, they can't fly. Some of them molt in, you know, in variable ways to where you never see the entire chicken looking bad. But it's one of the number one reasons why they go off lay. And hopefully they don't do it when winter sets in and they need their feathers the most for insulation. Chickens aren't smart. Uh, let's see what else is going on. My clip queens are coming from B Weaver. Yeah, Bee Weaver, they offer it as an option to clip them. Bee Weaver, good queens, by the way. Uh, let's go to James Stroop, 4552. That's the YouTube name. First winter, new beekeeper here. So far, so good. I have a springtime question. I haven't seen anything on. When feeding, is it possible to use a food coloring in my one-to-one -to, -one to visually see if my honey I'm pulling is actually honey or the one-to-one. -one. Well, I'm going to talk about this because a lot of people will be thinking about boosting their bees in spring. Here, I don't generally need to do that uh, because the forage will kick in. When you see those dandelions, they're going to get all the nectar that they need to keep going. But if you are feeding your bees, sugar syrup, one-to-one, -one, two-to-one, whatever it happens to be, although the spring feeding for sugar syrup for your bees, if you really want them to kick off and use that energy because we're not talking about freezing nights anymore, it wouldn't be two to one. Two to one is something that people feed their bees at the end of the year when they realize the colony is too light and they really need to try to get them to backfill and store some of it. That's where two to one kicks in. So the thing is, if you're feeding the light syrup, the one to ones, and some even go lighter than that, by the way, with a lot of success. So uh, once they start feeding that, though, you would not have your honey supers on. So never provide open feeding or in high feeding on a hive that has honey supers on where you plan to use that honey for consumption or if you're gonna sell it. It's a matter of ethics. Do not feed sugar syrup once you start to super your hives for that reason. Now to answer the question, if you added food coloring to the sugar syrup, would it show up? Yeah, it would. In fact, this is one of the experiments a lot of people do when they're first learning about bees and how the storekeeper bees uh, move resources around in the hive, and they use colors to do that. And food coloring is one of the common things to do. So it does work. 
Um, I wouldn't do it in a regular hive because you're going to have to check it all the time to see where it's being placed. And uh, you can even see if you're doing backyard experiments and you've got, you know, homeschoolers or something like that, and it's early spring or it's a colony that you know you are not going to be taking honey from because they're small or just getting started. You can feed for one week, let's say red food coloring in it. And then the next week you do blue. And then you can start to see when you finally do your inspections where they organize that. And you'll see that they cluster those together. So it is kind of interesting, personally, never when you have honey supers on. So do, 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 that's it for that. What else we have? James, BSA, Fred, would you recommend spending over $100 queen shipped just because it was inoculated for American fallow brood, seeing that this at TBS thoughts. Okay. A lot of people don't know, but there is vaccination for queens right now. You're going to hear a lot more about it. And it is for, what's the vaccination for? It's for American fallow brood. For those of you who don't know, if you're new, American fallow brood, once you get it, you have to destroy your hive that has it. So it's devastating. Here's the good news though. And why personally, I'm not a queen, I'm not a breeder. Okay, so let's remember my target audience is backyard beekeepers, small scale beekeepers. Um, so would I personally pay for a vaccinated queen? No, I wouldn't. And here's why. The state of Pennsylvania that I'm in, we had zero incidents of American fowl breed. That's great news. So fowl brood is something we don't want to get, you know, complacent about it. Obviously, we need to understand what American fowl brood looks like. We need to have the kits on the shelf ready to go. So you should have American fowl brood kit and a European fowl brood kit so that you know what you're dealing with when you start to see some problems with your brood area. You want to be able to do the rope test with your uh, toothpick or whatever you use and be able to do a field test on it. Because if it does show up to be American fowl brood, then we want to make sure and report that to our Department of Agriculture so that others around us also know to test for it because that colony is doomed. Now, would I pay for a vaccinated queen? No. If I were a breeder and if I were giving or selling bees to a lot of people, if I'm developing packages, if I have a big queen breeding program, um, I might look heavy into vaccination if there are any instances of American fowl brood with 100 miles of me. Here's where we get messed up. People bring in hives, packages, and things like that. Um, nukes, in particular, can transport American fowl brood. American fowl brood can subsist or persist in the comb and frames and hive equipment for more than 40 years. That's why it's such a big deal. This is also why I tell people do not buy used frames do not take frames of drawn comb, old brood comb, and stuff like that from other people's hives. If you do not know the history of their hives and the health of those brood areas that they've come from, why wouldn't you just start fresh and guarantee that you're not starting with American fowl brood? Now, here's another part about American fowl brood that I want you to think about, which I think is kind of fun. Uh, we think about things like colonies of bees that are subsisting in trees, right? So that's a feral colony living in a bee tree. Nobody's checking them for fowl brood. So what happens if one of them had American or European fowl brood and they absconded or they just died out? Because it affects the brood, remember, but it gets passed on to the nurse bees who are attending to the brood and there it goes. So this is interesting. What moves in once these old combs are abandoned in an old tree? 
The wax moth flies in there, lays its eggs. Wax moth larvae are produced, and those are the wax worms. And what do they do? They consume the comb. Guess what they found out happens when they consume honeycomb in old hives, and uh, it has American fowl brood present. They destroy it. Their digestive system mitigates the American fowl brood. And so what then the residue that's left in the hive is clean. That's interesting stuff. So anyway, there we go. Uh, let's see, second in equipment, it cannot be. So DCB says almost all of my equipment is secondhand. Without secondhand equipment, I cannot be a beekeeper. Okay, then I will say that for DC's bees and others that are in that situation. Know the beekeeper you're getting your hive equipment from. Know the history of that apiary, and it better be somebody with a lot of integrity. That's all I have to say. Okay. Next question comes from David. Worcester, Massachusetts. I hope I said that right. It's spelled Worcester, but I think it's Worcester. That's the way they say it. I have a fun question for you. On April 8th of 2024, you will experience a full solar eclipse. What preparations will you do or be doing so your bees don't get lost for the three and a half minutes of darkness? A more serious question and request, will the foraging bees just stop flying for a bit? Would it be interesting to set up a camera? Okay, so let me just explain it right now. I have a solar filter for my largest, most obnoxious camera system already, so I'm ready for that. That's how you shoot directly at the eclipse, so we'll do a time lapse for that. We have several cameras that are going to be out on landing boards, and we're going to see the behavior of foraging bees. Here's what I think is just going to happen. They're just going to stop. Bees cannot navigate in the dark. They can't. That's why they don't fly at night. So I think the bees are just going to hunker down in place. I think it's going to catch them off guard and they're just going to stay where they happen to be. If they're hovering over a flower, they're going to land on it. I'm just forecasting that. I'm just saying, what else are they going to do? And it's not the end of the world. Three and a half minutes of darkness and the light begins to come up again. I think they're going to go everywhere. But because so many people have asked me, I'm going to set out several cameras monitoring several locations just to see what the bees do while uh, the eclipse happens. And by the way, I am in what's referred to as a path of totality. So every motel room in my area, this is Northwestern Pennsylvania, uh, is booked for that day. Like they're getting a great economic boost because people are coming from all over the place to be here. There's something also about being near the Great Lakes that the atmosphere is clear or something. I'm not an astronomer. I don't know all the ins and outs. All I know is I paid fat stacks for a solar filter for my largest lens. That's all I know. But uh, yeah, I'm going to shoot it anyway. So there we go. Southern Cali Beekeeper says, Fred, have you tried strong microbial probiotics? Now, the probiotics are super DFM, and they also have their um, fondant patties. I spoke with them at the conference, by the way. And... Uh, the probiotics that they have are beneficial to the bees, but the biggest selling point for the strong microbials, super DFM, direct fed microbials, uh, is that they tailor that to help your bees metabolize um, industrial agricultural pesticides that your bees are going to likely be exposed to. So it can help them do better and improves the microbiome and everything else. Now, the other part of that is, have I noticed a difference? So I do have it, by the way. And... Uh, Without 
you know, dissecting the bees and looking at their gut and looking at the microbiome specifically, I probably can't really tell much of a difference. And here's the thing, because I already don't see a detrimental impact on my bees. And that may just because I'm not that detailed about it. So because there are sublethal impacts that affect the honeybee longevity. So a bee that might have five more weeks of foraging could end up with three weeks of foraging after the sublethal impact of neonicotinoids or something like that on the pollen that ultimately does end up in your worker bee's digestive system as well. We know that the nurse bees are using the pollen to produce bee bread and of course to raise brood. So that would be the high impact area. But uh, it also shows up, the pollen shows up in the mid-gut of uh, your regular workers too as they age and may have, see, I don't have conclusive information, but I'm not, I'm not a lab. I'm not the Beltsville lab, for example. I will tell you this, I have a bunch of uh, stuff sent off that I'm waiting lab results on that I've been waiting for six months for lab results uh, because my bees were collecting pollen from uh, the corn. So a lot of bees were on the tasseling corn and are bringing that pollen in in decent amounts. So I gathered it all, sent it in, and we want to know what the neonicotinoid and other pesticide levels will be in the pollen, which of course ultimately is going to be fed to your bees and impact potentially their longevity. But uh, I know that uh, you know strong microbials has really good science behind what they're doing. Uh, I'm just not at the level where I can say it's really good or it doesn't work at all. Uh, I can say that I didn't see a noticeable improvement, but that's basic backyard observation. So MMB says, question, Fred, please make a French worry hive for the inspector. He would love it. Both would be the height of each other, and it would also recommend frames over top bars for the trainee. Okay, don't get me started on Quinn and all the hives that he thinks he needs to have for his own backyard official junior beekeeper research. But I will say that the worry hive isn't on his list. He's doing a lot of reading. He's looking at all the hive types. He's made his choices. So we're going to see how that goes. And I'm not going to spoil it by telling you what he chose because he has to build his own hives. That's part of his wax on, wax off learning process. He has to earn everything he gets in the bee yard, and uh, he's going to be putting these things together himself. So we're going to see how it goes, but I can say it's not going to be a worry hive at this time. Let's see. Oh, here goes Mark, who says, I was in Wyoming for the total solar eclipse back in 2017, right in the path of totality. I don't remember it getting dark enough to prevent bees from flying. It was a cool experience, though. There you go. And uh, we'll just do it. We'll do the video. We'll see what happens. And uh, yeah, so anyway, the, the camera's already here. I have all the equipment. I might as well make a video. Why not? Now, what if it rains or what if we have a bad weather day? That would just ruin everybody's joy and happiness. Everybody's selling the glasses too, by the way. Don't buy your glasses off of eBay and all that. There is a national... Uh, astronomy group that has a list of recommended safe glasses for you to look at the eclipse, I would go to those sites and find the proven safe glasses. Don't just get them from, you know, Etsy or wherever somebody decided to sell them. That's just my recommendation. I'm just saying, save your eyesight. You stare at the sun at the wrong time before that eclipse happens and you can fry yourself. I'm just saying. 
Next question comes from David from, oh, I guess I already did that. Oh no, David from Worcester snuck two questions in here. How did that happen? Good one. I'm a third year beehaver and this may be my first winter that turned into a beekeeper. My hives are still alive in the new year for winter feeding. You are consistent in your approach of not feeding liquid sugar syrup during winter. It seems from what I've heard and read that the main reason for most cited reason for not feeding syrup in the winter is that the cold syrup will chill the bees. The hives have two and a half inches of styrofoam insulation on the size, four and a half of foam above plexiglass inner cover. I have temperature monitors inside my hives. Currently, the temperature outside the hives is 22.8 degrees Fahrenheit. Inside the inner cover is 68.2. Currently, I have a wrap around feeder with granulated sugar on top of the inner cover, but below the insulation, and it is 62 inside the feeder. With the temperature of the feeder being 63, I would think that two to one syrup would stay warm. Would this setup be a chilling hazard? Okay. This is timely, actually. Why we don't put syrup on in areas where we have exterior temperatures, the inside hive temperature doesn't play. Although if hive, if liquids inside your hive or in your feeding super or your feeder shim or whatever you have, if it were at 50 degrees Fahrenheit or lower, you do chill your bees and they do go into kind of a, a chill coma, it's called. So anyway, but that's not the reason. That's not why we don't put sugar syrup in our hives for wintertime. It's not because of the warmth. It's because of the additional moisture. Your bees are stuck inside. In regard, and this is true of people that have observation hives, for example. Um, if they have to fly outside, even though inside it's nice and warm, uh, they can't fly out and eliminate when it's below freezing outside. So if it's really cold outside, giving them a lot of liquid inside is just like giving you three bran muffins and three big cups of coffee and then getting you stuck in New York City traffic for five hours with no way to pull off. See what just happened? Your bees have to be able to get out and do cleansing flights. So if you're in an area where they can do that year round, then sugar syrup would be okay year round. Uh, the real thing is, of course, the amount of liquid that the bees have to hold in their bodies and they're holding it because they do not want to eliminate inside the hive. And uh, if they do, you have a real problem with infection inside your hive. So they need to be able to do cleansing flights. A lot of liquid causes them to do more cleansing flights. So there you go. Any other questions? Always needs next gen. Started as teen. I made some double bubble cozies and put over my feeder jars for the spring. They will work instead of putting empty box around them. By the way, the, the double bubble, I created hot pockets for my observation hives. I got called out by my friend Bill who said, hey, you didn't follow your own rules where you do one or two with and one without, which is true. I created hot pockets and put them over all of my observation hives. I didn't want to test them out and lose one in the wintertime. Under the hot pocket in an unheated building, each of my observation hives averages 10 to 15 degrees warmer than the room temperature in the building. So, and the temperature sensor is outside the observation hive sitting on top of it under the hot pocket. So a single layer of this stuff, that's all I did. That's all I put on there. And they do great and they're doing great right now. It's very interesting. So, yeah. 
you can create just thin layers and have a terrific uh, benefit for your bees. Let's see what else to do, 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 do. This comes from Tandy Beth in Western Kentucky. Two days ago, our temps were close to 32 degrees and sunny. I used the thermal imaging to check on the status of my hives. One seemed to be a dead out. Today, I opened the hive to retrieve the frames and I heard the bees. I immediately stopped and put it back together. I don't think there's enough to actually survive the rest of winter as uh, the temps we're experiencing and wind chills are below zero overnight and there wasn't enough to register on thermal. I'd be happy to share my photos of the thermals. Okay, so here's the thing and why I wanted this question to be brought up today. Because we're people, we're curious and we look at our hives and whether we have the fancy thermal stuff, I know Randy McCaffrey has one, I have one, I have the FLIR system. Um, when you see a colony that does not have a good heat signature on it, let's say all of the others do and you come across one and it just doesn't, right? First of all, insulated hives, it doesn't show very well at all. You never know where the bees are in that. So um, let's see, you just say, oh, they must be dead. I'm going to open it up and I'm going to start breaking down that hive right now. Please don't. Here's why. Uh, they could be alive. In fact, I've had colonies that didn't even fly at all. It happens winter after winter after winter. It'll be, you know, 9 out of 10, 15 out of 20 colonies will be flying one day. And then you see the others, no activity on the landing board, nothing going on, no heat signature. What does it benefit you? to open up that hive just because you get curious and you feel like now's the time to pull apart all those frames and go ahead and start cycling out that equipment. You are not getting a jump on anything. So please do not open any of your beehives in the dead of winter. Wait for spring, wait for resources to be coming in. And you know what? You'll often be surprised that you'll find what Tandy Beth found here is that when you open it up, they made a noise. All of a sudden you have bees and they are alive. And here we mess with them. It is so exciting in spring to walk out and look at a colony that you know is dead. And all of a sudden they're flying and you see pollen coming in. They had all the resources they need. They didn't need to fly out. They were doing great. Some of the most insulated hives have that exact same behavior on these warm sunny days. By the way, I want to say a quick thank you to Selma for the capital gains. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So yeah, please don't open your hives in the wintertime. Wait, wait until there's a nectar flow on, the pollen, flow, the pollen is flowing, everything is great. And then see, because you'll often be surprised that they make it. And uh, it's gonna be all over but the crying when you open it up and you see that little tight cluster of bees and do it. I make my grandson do. If he thinks bees are dead, he brings them in to the kitchen table. He was just out here. And uh, they're not. They're not. They're in a state of torpor. They could have made it. And we like to make it. I'm not, I'm not picking on Tandy Beth here. Is it Tandy Beth? Yeah. I'm not picking on Tandy Beth, but it makes ourselves feel better later to say, ah, oh, they wouldn't have made it anyway. There's only a handful of them. They were they were doomed anyway. I wasn't the one that ruined it for them. Actually, I think you were. I think I think you ruined it for them. I think I think they would have been your best colony ever, and it's your fault now that they're not going to make it. 
Okay, so moving on. Uh, do, 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 do. Breakfast with bees. Like to shoot mine at night or early morning. Let's see. This is Mike Skadson. Love your videos. I'm in Portland, Oregon. Seems like timing on bees is different. Are there temp timings to judge my beekeeping? Uh, the temps and day length and all that stuff are really not the big keys. The big keys are uh, environmental resource cues. Those are the biggest impact for your bees. And that's why keeping records is so important. Get your calendar out. The first day you see any kind of pollen come in, mark it on your calendar. Which hives were bringing in the pollen? What was the color of the pollen? Was it salix discolor? Did it come from pussy willow trees? Is it coming from some other source that you haven't identified yet? And there's a lab, by the way, right now I saw it in uh, the American Bee Journal that they're offering pollen analysis services. So you can send in your pollen if you really want to know what the source of it is. I don't know if it changes anything for you. They're going to bring in pollen. And when they do, uh, that's when you'll see what the resources are, the things are going on. And that's what kicks off your brood for the year. So... Because weather dynamics are going to be in flux a lot. I think we all kind of have accepted that. So what your trees, what your flower sources are, what's going on in the environment year after year, the consistent trends are really what you're going to base that on. If you want to know if you're going to have a dearth period, of, you know, just a historical dearth that happens year after year, where you live, get your pen out and write this down. Bscape.org. B-E-E. S-C-A-P-E dot org. And then you put in your address and you'll find out if you have a dearth. What time of year are your bees going to be receiving the greatest resource from the environment? And that thing is constantly updated. Almost spooky how accurate they are sometimes. So you definitely want to pay attention to things like that. But really, it's seasonal. What's going on with your flowers, the environment, the trees, and it's just, it's a cycle that repeats over and over, and you will be able to plan your beekeeping on that. Most of the people listening to me right now are going to be caught off guard in spring when a hive suddenly swarms and they looked normal. They didn't even seem like they were building up. We need to know what's going on so that uh, you can super up your hives if you're hoping to keep them around longer and give them additional space and get that honey from it. And I want to thank Southern Cali Beekeeper for that cup of coffee. So I really do appreciate it. Um, still happy with your new weather station installation from last year, likes or dislikes? Okay, so that is the Ambient Weather Network. And uh, I like it a lot. I still have the Atlas and I have the other weather stations. I have three weather stations because I'm a weather nut. And uh, they're doing great. And I particularly like the anemometer that is ultrasonic. It is accurate. My other anemometers on my Atlas weather station, which was one of the most expensive ones, um, does not accurately record particularly wind gusts or sudden wind events. It under reports those. So I like it a lot, and I have more sensors to add, actually. I have a soil moisture sensor that all reads on that same panel. And for those of you who are wondering what we're talking about, uh, often I open my videos with a screenshot of a weather station. So that is my ambient weather network station that's out in my yard. And uh, it shows all of the 
all the stuff you ever wanted to know about, including indoor temps and things like that and humidity. But uh, I really like their equipment and you can add stuff to it. So the soil moisture meter, I also have a satellite sensor that I put out in my um, observation hive building. So I know what's going on out there, but it's basic temp and humidity, which is all I really want to know anyway. So I do like it. It's good. In fact, for the price, I think it's it's the best one. And if any of you want to check it out, if you just go to my YouTube channel and type in, in the little search bar up there, weather station, uh, you'll see all the ones that I've reviewed. And I've reviewed three different weather stations, and that's by far my favorite. So, do, 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 do. what else? Are there any other questions for me? And did I miss a question, by the way? Don't want to be skipping over anybody because I've covered all the questions that I've that were submitted. I'm going to backtrack here a little bit. I think you're all talking to one another. I don't even think you need me here right now. So what else? And I should have my dirt rooster cup. I was the first one to buy it when it came out, by the way, and they had it on Facebook. All the rooster Malaya's hives last fall with sheep's wool as far as it seems to be working great so yeah layman's hive especially the roof do you know of any study that shows the hygienic trait loss from mother to daughter that's from kyle nice or is it niece um you're going to have to go to google scholar and look up honeybee genetics and this trait transfer is something that I never personally get a grip on. Genetics seems like it should be very straightforward. It's not. Uh, recessive traits, traits that carry over, dominant traits are just, they leave me lost in the dust. So go to Google Scholar and type in Queen Bee Genetics Traits Passed On, and you're going to find whatever the current scientific study is. And it's going to be very involved. And uh, I just, that's it. Here's from Reverend Liz. It says, what is your best advice for a first-time beekeeper? Well, your best advice for a first-time beekeeper is to get yourself a local mentor, somebody that you like. And uh, I got slammed by my own bee club members this past week when they said, don't watch YouTubes. Okay, I agree with that. But I want you to watch YouTubes. Obviously, that's how I share the information that I glean. However, it does not... Uh, compare with having a mentor, somebody that you develop a relationship with, somebody that's going to be your friend, who's going to take you through, who already keeps bees in your region. Join a bee club if you can get along with those people and try to find somebody that you're compatible with that will walk you through it. And before you get bees of your own, I know it's hard to be patient because we want to get bees right away. Try to go through an entire year with another beekeeper in your area, help them out, be friendly, be an observer, always show up with coffee, whatever it takes. And then you're going to learn really what's going on in your area. The other thing is try to get a hold of somebody that's been doing uh, bees for at least four years. Uh, third year is kind of the charm. And that's where a lot of people kind of, they either quit or continue. Some people are just continuing because they invested so much money that they can't face the fact that they might've failed. So looking for people with at least three or four years experience would be a good starting point too, uh, because they have already hopefully figured it out and they're still in the game. 80% of new beekeepers quit 
at the end of their third year. That's because diseases and things like that tend to build up in your hives. And that's when you suffer the greatest losses and kind of the honeymoon's over. You know, you walk out there and you had 15 beehives and 13 of them survived winter. It's a hard hit. But that's what, I guess that's what I would say. And watch some YouTubes, you know, but if, if you don't have anybody else around and maybe take an online course, by the way, there are lots of those out there too, which will make sure you check all the boxes, you know. So here's something from Maureen. Question, lots of dead bees today. Temp is 73 degrees Fahrenheit. First time I cleared out the dead in two weeks. How often should we be doing this in winter? I'm in Maryland. Okay, so for Maureen and everyone else, um, don't be alarmed that you see a bunch of dead bees, okay? Because they can't actually pile up. These are bees that are trying to get out of the hive that are expiring anyway. Remember that bees are getting to the end of their life, even though they're inside the hive. If it's too cold to fly, they end up piling up on the bottom of your hive. That's why it's very important to clean out the entrances. Now, if you find a, a huge pile of dead bees, like if you look in front of a hive and there's an inch thick or two inches thick of dead bees right in front of it, that's very bad. So I don't want to alarm you, but that's bad news. If you see a shotgun pattern of dead bees spread out in front of your hive and you scoop out, you know, a quarter of an inch thick or three-eighths of an inch thick of dead bees and you're scooping them out with your, your Bee Smart Designs entrance cleaner that I give to all my grandsons and they have to use these when they come here, uh, that's normal. So you'll see dead bees, but you'll also, maybe you can put your head on the side of the hive and listen and you'll find out that the news isn't all bad. But when you see, also, here's, a, here's another thing that's a good point to notice, is when you clean out the dead bees, if you come back a day or two later and you find there's more dead bees at that entrance that you're cleaning out, that means there were bees still alive. So they're not just dead and done, they're dead and dying. That's marginally better because you still have bees inside. So I think uh, just wait and see, but definitely clean those entrances out because when they have an opportunity to do a cleansing flight, you don't want them to be blocked by a bunch of dead bees because kind of this is the order of business. When uh, there is some kind of warm up that we just recently had, for me, it was high 40s, lower elevations. It was in the 50s. Bees were flying. So their first order of business is to get out and eliminate. Second order of business is to get water. They're licking up water from puddles. And we've had a lot of rain here and a lot of melt off from the snow. So the bees are actually drinking water on the landing boards of their hives and going right back in. And then the last thing that they do, if the warm up continues, is you'll see undertaker bees dragging out their dead. So if you see bees dragging out dead bees on those landing boards during these kind of warm-up spots that we get, that's a healthy hive because they're cleaning house. That means they've got the surplus energy and bees to do that activity. If they're barely getting out the door, getting water, going back in, and they're avoiding all the dead bees, they don't have the time or surplus work, work reinforcements to do the removal of dead bees. That's where you can help them out. So I hope that was helpful. Here comes Pete, by the way, mentioning, because this jumped out at me, skunk cabbage, dirt rooster up northeast here. Usually, I think, similar there. Skunk cabbage, by the way, is fantastic. If you don't know what we're talking about, I did videos about it. It's a lot of fun. It was on my bucket list of videos I wanted to shoot. Skunk cabbage, where I live, I happen to own a, a plot of wetland. Skunk cabbage comes up, and... Uh, when it opens, skunk cabbage is a warm-blooded plant. Generates its own heat, will melt right up through snow and ice, and then it opens up, and then you'll see a little ball inside 
where the pollen is. It generates its own heat, which means it's like a sauna. So when the bees fly to it and it smells strong, maybe why they call it skunk cabbage, because of the smell. So when you walk downwind of it, you can smell where it is. And that's how I track whichever ones smell the strongest. And then I sit out there in the swamp and I stare at the skunk cabbage and I see when bees fly out because I want videos of bees flying out. So they get early pollen from it. It's a very interesting plant. And then somebody immediately said I had no clue what skunk cabbage looks like. And they showed pictures of the big leafy green cabbages in the wetlands. Correct. That is what it looks like when it's mature. But they're more of the color of my shirt here. They're kind of a burgundy color when they're new and they're spotted. And then when they're first coming through, they look very different. Bears eat them too when they're mature. So skunk cabbage, a lot of fun. Look into it. It's amazing. Let's see what else is going on. I see the small black objects on my hives that are painted white. The spots are black and look like the size of a pencil. It might be typical fungus. Okay, don't know anything about that. Uh, bought a cheap used deep freezer years ago to freeze my supers after extracting. Never had any trouble with wax moss doing this. Yeah, wax moss. Those of us who are in really cold areas, uh, the wax moths die out anyway. Wax moths are only going to move into your hives that have already died out or don't have bees defending them. They just don't make it in a healthy colony of bees. So, but yeah, if you have a storage shed and you're in areas like where I am, where it freezes at night anyway, you are running them through a freeze cycle. So no problem there. All right, so Romex makes a good dead bee remover. So Romex, for those of you who don't know, that's household electrical wiring that has the plastic coating on it. But yeah, anything that you can reach in there and make a little hook with it and pull stuff out, uh, it's good to go. So let's see. All right, you guys, it's been, it's been an hour. If anybody has a question, ask now. Otherwise, I think we're going to wrap things up. Let me just do a back check here. Cabbage. Thinking of buying chest freezer. We're still talking about that. I think we're good. Maybe. All right, that's it. Well, when it comes to next Friday, we'll be right back to the pre-recorded Q&A. Let me know if you like the live discussions, live Q&A. I know you're all saying hello to each other. It's pretty nice. Uh, you get to say hey and see how everything's going. And uh, I hope that wherever you are, your bees are, it says, is it over? Well, if you have a question, I'm happy to stick around and answer the question, but I don't want us all just to sit around and stare at our computers because nobody's asking me a question right now. So yeah, it's probably over. So I want to thank you for being here. I think that uh, some of the things you want to really stay on top of, uh, whether or not your bees are fed and they have emergency resources. I think uh, if you have the chance to get out there and check them, please don't pull apart your hives for no reason. Also, if you think your bees are dead, if the colony is a dead out, do not pull it apart until warm weather is here and you get a nice mid 60s, nice day when you won't be doing harm to the bees and you'll know for sure whether they're in there. So, um, if you've got fondant, dry sugar, whatever it is you put on there, an emergency resource is an emergency resource. It should be located directly above your bees in the center, not off to the side. Here is uh, Susan who says, 
Just a suggestion, if people will put their question in all caps, it'll be easier for you to see in the chat. But that's like shouting. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. So if you have a question for me, I will give you 90 seconds to write it in all caps, and I'll do my best to answer it right now. Otherwise, you're going to exit the chat, the live stream. So Keith Spillman says, hit the like before you leave. And he has a bunch of exclamation points. So that's probably a good idea. And Lester says, thanks. You're very welcome. I'm glad you all were here. I hope it was beneficial. Oh, printable science. I have a question. What is it? Are you going to UBO to be UBO testing? I will not. I just don't need it. So. Let's see what else. Do, do, do. This is from Dwayne. How to make starter seed. Oh, it says created honey, but I think it means creamed honey. I am not a creamed honey maker. So I'm going to have to leave you high and dry on that. And uh, Printable Science says, have you ultraviolet photographed bees? That's interesting. I used to actually use ultraviolet film that we had to carry around in a cooler. And we were actually, though, photographing reptiles, which was interesting. But no, I've not used ultraviolet for photographing bees. Uh, is it okay to use Bee Smart rubber screens year round? I personally wouldn't. All right. The Bee Smart rubber screen, I was about to say I personally wouldn't, but here's the thing this is what we're talking about. This is a rubber screen. Could you use it year-round? Yes, you could. And here's why. These pins that are up here that come with it, you can take these off and you push them into this front piece right here. And it raises this up three-eighths of an inch, which means it's also a mouse guard and your bees can come and go through the bottom. So I was about to say no because I don't like the idea of making your bees go up through the top, the robber screen openings. But I forgot you can put these through here, through the pin at the bottom. It raises the whole thing up. And now you have a 3 8 inch opening. So yes, in theory, you can use it all year round. The Smart Designs routing screen. So yeah, you could do it. Lift it up, though. I wouldn't make them climb through the top all the time. So let's, wow, that idea of making everybody top and all, typing all caps, the screen. Okay. Uh, is it okay to use, okay. Can we get a notify me? Hmm. When is the next Friday live Q&A date-wise? Lazy to reach for the calendar. Okay, it's always the last Friday of the month. So it'll be the last Friday of February will be the next live stream Q&A. So when does live stream start? The weeks you start it? Thanks for the good info. You're very welcome, Mike. It always The live stream is always going to be the last Friday of the month. So do you ever post anywhere your schedule for your presentations? Some of us close enough to travel to them would be interested. So these are in-person presentations that I go to. Um, I suppose I could make a page on my uh, thewaytobe.org and have a page marked presentations and I'll just post them there. So we have a lot of them coming up this year. So that will be interesting. Uh, what else? Do you ever post anywhere? Right, that's the schedule. You already did that. 
media channel, live in Arkansas, would like to start raising bees, but how would I start? Thank you. So that's for Travis Warner and anybody else that's just starting out. Try your best to find a local beekeeping group and try to get a local mentor that can help you get started. Other than that, really good books out there on starting with bees. Kim Flottam uh, published several. And I just noticed in the stream that Kim Flottam, Kim Flottam, by the way, just passed away. And he was a beekeeping authority for a long time, published a lot of great books, and he has one of the, the best uh, beginner beekeeping books that you can get your hands on. And I just noticed that they're selling his latest book, so they must have published it post-mortem, and uh, it's going to be available on Amazon. So Kim Flotum's Beginning with Bees, I would highly recommend that book. Uh, Rhonda says, your observation hives have issues of swarming, or are they like any other hive? So I will answer that by saying, yes, they have issues with swarming, just like any other hive that's small. So, because that's the thing. Um, and why I don't actually mind that they do that. We have three observation hives in our education building. Uh, we like to see them cycle through and demonstrate to the people that are looking and learning uh, what their preparations for swarming look like, what their queen cells look like. And they are small. So they are only... They're 12 frame colonies. So it's just the equivalent of a deep and not even a full medium. So they are small, which means they cycle out regularly. Uh, but because they're for teaching, we like them to do that. And then we see these replacements and how the hive recovers and the numbers come back and how the brood builds up and everything else. But yes, yeah, small colonies are just swarm machines. They really are. Now we really hope that at the end of the year, uh, we can control swarming with those hives by removing the queen for a while and uh, getting a brood break, which also gives us an opportunity to treat uh, with oxalic acid vaporization and then restore the queen later within two weeks to 14 days, you know, two weeks to 14 days. So right around 14 days, we can reintroduce the queen and still have the brood break and not run the risk of them replacing her. So uh, it can work, uh, but uh, observation hives left to themselves will just continually swarm and cycle out like any small colony of bees. Uh, doo -doo -doo -doo. It says here, this is from Delise Palumbo. I know you have posted comparisons on pollen sub, but could not find it. I can give you the order of pollen subs right now. AP23, number one, Mega B, number two, and Man Lakes Ultra B, number three, for nutritional value, brood buildup, and lab results that were published. So if you look at, now we look at the three that I just mentioned, dry uh, pollen substitutes, when you put them out, uh, they exponentially go for the ultra B first, even though it's less nutritious. So then you have to balance if they're getting more of it, is that actually more of a benefit? Because the way the science was done, it showed like amounts. In other words, they were consuming the same amount of pollen sub in each one and then they established brood buildup. And then the controls were, of course, no pollen sub at all. And then uh, they found that they had the greatest um, brood buildup from AP23. So, and AP just stands for artificial pollen. And it's, of course, their 23rd formula for that. So they're getting the best. Now, they're all pretty much the same in price. But for backyard, just observations, the 
Man Lake Ultra Pea Dry Pollen Sub was preferred by the peas and visited by the bees many times more than the others, and they actually consumed AP23 last. So if it's the only thing you put out, though, it's probably what they'll take, but that's it. Um, to do, 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 do guess the next one starts at 4 p.m. USA time. That will be 9 p.m. in Scotland. Okay, that's true. 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. is what I do on Fridays. So what program or app do you use with Broodminder? Broodminder has their own app for your phone, and uh, mine are sitting unused. So because I just get a lot of data that I wasn't using. So uh, to do, but others may answer if you're using Broodminder, what apps are you using? You can go to the Broodminder website and see what they recommend. And I think that's it. We're going to wrap it up. So I want everyone to have a fantastic weekend and take care of your bees, keep your entrances clear, keep the emergency feed on, align your boxes, be ready for heavy weather. Some people uh, have their hives blow over and stuff like that. The rain softens the ground, zipping things up, and everything else is great. So I want to thank you all for being here and joining me on another Friday. So next Friday will be normal. And uh, thanks for being here. Have a fantastic weekend.